Good morning from the newsroom of the Financial Times. Today is Monday, November 18th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Saudi Aramco is scaling back its initial public offering. Nancy Pelosi vows to protect the Ukraine whistleblower from President Trump. Boris Johnson will attempt to woo corporate Britain today, and HP unanimously rejects an offer from its smaller rival. Plus, the cost of higher education means that students, especially American students, are buried in debt. The FT's Archie Hall reports on an alternative method of funding students that is gaining ground. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Saudi Arabia had high hopes for Saudi Aramco's initial public offering. Now it's scaling back its expectations. The kingdom had once wanted to raise $100 billion, but on Sunday it said it's now aiming for about a quarter of that. The state oil giant's listing will still be significant. Saudi Aramco will float just 1.5% of its total shares to investors at a price that will value it at between $1.6 trillion and $1.7 trillion. It would overtake Apple as the largest listed company in the world. But it falls short for Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who wanted to sell as much as 5% of the company at a valuation of $2 trillion. Sources told the FT that Saudi officials were informed of a big gap in demand between domestic retail investors and foreign institutions. And so Aramco will focus less on foreign institutions. It's going to cancel the U.S. and Japan portions of its international roadshow. Ahead of another week of open hearings into the Trump administration's dealings with Ukraine, Nancy Pelosi has a message for the U.S. president. Well, I will make sure he does not intimidate the whistleblower. I was there. I told the president, you're in my wheelhouse when you come after the whistleblower. That was the House Speaker on CBS on Sunday. President Trump has said he wants to interview the whistleblower who first sparked the impeachment inquiry into Mr. Trump's July phone call with Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky. He says he deserves to meet his accuser. The president has already been accused of witness intimidation. He tweeted insults at former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, as she testified on Friday. Several firsthand witnesses are preparing to testify before Congress this week, including U.S. ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, who appears on Wednesday. Boris Johnson reportedly once said in vulgar terms, he didn't really care about businesses' view on Brexit. Now he's trying a little less vinegar and a little more honey. The UK Prime Minister plans to tell attendees at the CBI conference in London today that he will reduce business rates and provide a series of tax breaks. Those breaks would be worth about a billion pounds a year by 2022. The CBI is the biggest industry group representing British business. Some companies have complained that they pay more in business rates, or the amount they pay in taxes for property, than they do for actual corporation tax, their earnings. Meanwhile, Labor leader Jeremy Corbyn will take advantage of his own speech at the conference. He's expected to outline reforms to the apprenticeship levy to help tackle climate change. And HP has shot down Xerox's ambitious $30 billion bid to acquire its much larger rival. HP's board unanimously rejected the bid, and in a letter to Xerox's chief executive, the board said the bid, quote, significantly undervalues the company. But HP signaled that it's open to the idea of combining with Xerox, provided a few more details are discussed. 
Activist investor Carl Icahn owns stakes in both companies and described a tie-up as a no-brainer. Analysts say a deal could have unlocked as much as $2 billion in annual cost savings. And here's a story you should know more about. Student debt has become an inescapable part of the higher education conversation, especially in the United States, where the student debt burden sits at $1.5 trillion. So how do students get funding if not through a loan from a bank or the federal government? Back in the 1970s, Yale University briefly offered something called Income Share Agreements, or ISAs. The Yale version of ISAs didn't work out long term, but nearly half a century later, they're gaining ground. Archie Hall reports for the FT's companies pages. He explains how ISAs work and why they're gaining traction among investors. So in practical terms, instead of just going and borrowing, say, $10,000 from a bank or from you know, the federal government or something like that, with an ISA, what you do instead is sell the rights to a share of your future income for a certain amount of time, for, say, eight or 10 years. So kind of to give a practical example, you know, the University of Utah, if you want to borrow $10,000 through their program with an ISA, rather than paying back you know, the principal, the interest, as you would with a loan, what you do is pay back 3.85% of your income for a certain amount of time. And that amount of time would vary depending on what kind of major you were. Yeah. And, and to that point, you know, what, where does this leave you know, the philosophy majors and the journalism majors and, and you know, the English majors? Absolutely. As a social studies major, I, I empathize with this question. Ultimately, it is true that the ISA programs that exist, a lot of them still only offer ISAs to majors in a particular set of fields, which are often the more pre-professional ones, although many places claim to be expanding. And for those that do offer ISAs towards more kind of intellectual liberal arts and less directly professionally focused majors, there are often more onerous terms. So for instance, the computer science major at Utah pays off their ISA in 79 months, but the anthropology major pays it off in 127 months. That is potentially something that we're not too, too comfortable with. It's, I think, an inherent feature of almost any form of trying to tie how much you're actually getting paid in terms of student debt, ISA, or anything like that to your future income. And it's one input into deciding what that future income is likely to look like. But that's the direction that not just ISAs are taking, but many forms of financing education of various sorts are taking. Okay, so I, I understand how it works from the student side. I'm an investor and I'm interested in an ISA. What's in it for me? So effectively, the pitch for ISAs for investors is that if you look around the market right now, a lot of traditional assets like you know sovereign bonds, corporate bonds, and things like that are offering some of the lowest yields they have in decades, if not in um, living memory. And as a result, we have a lot of investors who are trying to look towards more unconventional assets to try to get the kinds of high yields they might otherwise have been able to get through bonds and equities and things like that. And ISAs are an example of the kinds of things they're looking to. So, for instance, an ISA for an undergraduate degree right now would probably get you a yield in the high single digits. Uh, on ISA for a coding school or a technical academy or something like that might get you a yield in the low double digits. And so if you're an investor, usually the way this works is you'd go on ISA marketplace, and there are a couple of them out there right now, and 
you'd effectively decide to either buy a whole bundle of ISAs from a whole set of different institutions. You can just buy kind of you know, undergraduate or technical school ISAs as a securitized asset, the same way that some investors might invest in student debt or indeed in bonds and stocks and things like that. Or potentially what you can also do is invest in ISAs from a particular institution. So the University of Utah, Purdue and other colleges right now are in the process of putting together programs where other investors, which often alumni, will come through and say, I want to put a certain amount of money in. That money will be split up among the hundred or thousand students who are taking up that ISA and you know they get a share of the returns going forward. But this is for is further adding to the debt burden that a whole generation is carrying. Are there any protections in place for students? Are are there penalties for those who don't pay their ISAs back? So that's an interesting question. Right now, the case law around ISA defaults and things like that is fairly underdeveloped. And there are a few cases bouncing around the courts that will hopefully seek to resolve that in time. But there's a broader question there, which is that regulation around ISAs is not particularly well developed. In general, ISAs are regulated through contract laws. And there's legislation right now in Congress, actually sponsored by both Republicans and Democrats, that seeks to provide a better regulatory framework for that. So absolutely, one would suffer some penalty for just flat out refusing to pay back your ISA if it's a contract and you're not holding up your end of the contract. But the exact way in which that works, the exact penalties are still things that are being worked out. And that's a potential risk for investors. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. Today, we'll be keeping an eye on Hong Kong. Police tried to storm Hong Kong Polytechnic University early Monday after protesters barricaded themselves on campus. It followed one of the most violent periods in what has been a months-long political crisis. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 